Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note this call is being recorded. It is now my pleasure to turn today's program over to Tom Wallen, Editor-in-Chief at Energy Intelligence. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, and, um, and uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to our January virtual roundtable. Um, the title of this uh, discussion today is The Challenge of the Lower for Longer Oil Price Outlook. And um, I need to, before we begin, I just need to, to, to uh, read a legal disclaimer, uh, which uh, is as follows. Uh, the information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on the call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. Okay, with that out of the way, um, let's, get, let's get started here. Um, I think there's no, no question that the oil industry faces a truly daunting year, and today we're going to examine what lies ahead in what is widely expected to be a lower for longer oil price environment. Uh, today I'm joined by two of our in-house experts to explore these issues. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Jim Washer, who is the editor of Petroleum Intelligence Weekly and also the, the London Bureau Chief at Energy Intelligence. Um, and we're also going to hear from David Kirsch, who is the uh, managing director of our research and advisory group? And uh, in terms of the format today, we'll 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 talk among the two of us for three sorry the three of us for about 20 minutes or so, and then we'll open it up to your questions. So um, to begin here, um, uh, David, I'd like to just turn to you. And, and ask, um, you know, we've seen oil prices dropping fast here in early January. Um, how is this lower for longer oil price outlook likely to play out in 2016? In other words, how long uh, and how low? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, uh, nothing like starting off your morning by talking about uh, $30 oil prices um, to just put a positive spin on the day. Um, but the fundamental imbalance in crude markets has pushed um, prices down to you know levels we haven't seen since OPEC was talking about a price band in the early part uh, in the early 2000s really, um, and it's already some 40 percent below the average prices uh, seen in 2015. Um, really, rising supplies continue to outpace incremental demand growth, um, and the strengthening. Um, global economic headwinds um, don't provide much hope for, you know, a so-called natural rebalancing of the markets uh, in 2016. You know, these hopes uh, for this natural rebalancing hang on a sharp fall in unconventional oil production um, from the United States. And certainly these volumes have begun to show some contraction, um, but the extent of a further decline and the speed of the retrenchment remains to be seen. Uh, we should note, too, uh, that up until very recently, of course, uh, aggregate U.S. volumes have still shown growth even as unconventional starts to decline as uh, Gulf of Mexico projects continue to ramp up, um, offsetting this decline in the unconventional production. Um, I, think, I think even more concerning is that even as prices approach levels where other sources may be considering shut-ins too, tar sands and some of the most expensive ultra-deep water projects where we start approaching 
operating costs for these uh, areas, um, additional supplies are about to hit the market. You know, of course, over this past weekend, the last hurdles were cleared for Iran to resume crude exports fully. Um, it's unclear how much Iran can increase production and how quickly it can ramp up these volumes. But Tehran has long been pledging to increase output by at least 500,000 barrels per day. Um, this will largely offset any expected decline in U.S. unconventional uh, output and potentially add further to already bloated global inventories. Um, and with the overhang in global crude stocks, even an immediate rebalancing in prompt markets will take some time to translate into appreciable and durable fundamental support for prices. Um, how low can prices go is unfortunately an open question. The fundamental trends behind the collapse uh, remain very much in place as prompt supplies continue to run ahead of demand. Um, indications that U.S. unconventional production, as I noted, are finally beginning to reverse trend and decline, um, you know, are more than ups, uh, offset by uh, the Iranian exports. Uh, put simply, there is no established floor uh, in the current market and no fundamental support uh, for markets. Duration is also somewhat uncertain, uh, but the inventory overhang which we estimate to be in excess of 150 million barrels in OECD stocks alone, will also keep a, a damper on prices once fundamentals begin to come into balance. I think with this combination, we see a scant prospect, actually, for a durable price recovery in 2016 if the market is left to rebalance on its own or, so to say, again, um, naturally. Okay, thanks, David. Well, um, Jim, you know, turning to you, um, what what do the resulting financial pressures mean for oil companies, particularly major international oil companies who are presumably the best able to handle the challenges? And also, uh, maybe you could comment a little bit on on uh, what companies are most at risk. Thanks, Tom. Good day, everyone. Um, well, I suppose the conventional wisdom is that an oil price downturn draws investors towards the integrated majors. They're the classic defensive low oil price play. They have the stronger balance sheets. They have integration, downstream and chemicals businesses, which can offset the hit uh, on upstream earnings from lower prices. And all that remains true to an extent. But I think the majors are also, I mean, the majors are likely to weather the downturn better uh, than a lot of companies in the independent sector, but I think it will also expose uh, weaknesses and, and mistakes in the way they've run their operations in the past. They allowed costs to get out of control in the frenzy of project sanctioning and development that you saw under $100 oil. And they're now trying to rebase their businesses at a lower oil price. Uh, they've been talking about $60 per barrel as a kind of new normal break-even price, but that looks frankly a, lot, a long way off at the price we've got at the moment. So they're focused on capital and operational efficiency, but they're also committed to maintaining dividends, and that's becoming an increasingly difficult circle to square. They are already paying, uh, already borrowing to pay dividends last year, uh, and with negative cash flow ex expected across the majors this year, this situation is going to get worse, and it's something that the rating agencies are keeping a very close eye on. Only one company has bit the bullet so far, which is any. They cut the dividend last year, but I, I think others may have to follow suit. So that's the short-term pressure, but there are also some long-term issues. The majors are cutting capital investment, they're deferring projects, they're doing less exploration. Now, that helps balance the books in the short term, but it stores up trouble for the future because you're not refreshing and advancing your inventory of resources to replace declining output for your existing production base. And this is, of course, a group of companies that has frankly really struggled to deliver organic output growth over the past decade, even with $100 oil. 
So I can't help thinking that um, the two companies that have arguably taken the most controversial strategic decisions over the past year may have positioned themselves best for the medium term. Any cut their dividend, and that means I think they can move forward with a more realistic prospect of matching spending and dividend commitments to cash flow going forward. They've basically got the pain out of the way and removed uncertainty for investors. And Shell, of course, has caused quite a lot of controversy with its takeover of BG. People said they paid too much and moved too early. But what they've definitely done is given themselves some investment options and a choice of growth projects to pick from, which, of course, not many of their peers are going to have, given the cuts they're making to capital spending. Thanks, Jim. Um, David, what, what about the oil-producing countries? I mean, they're also under a huge amount of pressure due to the plunge in oil revenue for their economies. What are the greatest vulnerabilities these countries face? Uh, which ones are most at risk, and how do you see the year playing out for them? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and certainly um, no oil exporter, <clears throat> no uh, oil exporting country is happy with prices at current levels. Um, but obviously individual countries' um, vulnerability to price shocks uh, varies considerably. You know, it's going to be based on factors like the size and health of the non-oil sector of the economy, uh, their sovereign risk ratings, uh, and the availability and access to domestic and international credit, um, accumulated reserves, uh, that's foreign exchange reserves, um, and general economic conditions. Um, and But one, one of the things that we see in common with all of these countries is for most of the major oil exporting states, uh, the response in 2015 had been largely one of muddling through. Um, and perhaps they were buoyed by uh, relatively strong prices seen in the first half of the year, and perhaps also by uh, hopes or expectations of a durable price recovery by the end of 2015, which unfortunately didn't materialize. But uh, most of these countries enacted only marginal spending cuts, uh, preferring to build up debt or draw down reserves uh, to cover spending gaps. Unfortunately for many of these exporting states, uh, their non-oil economies are also very heavily commodity dependent. Um, and prices for metals and agricultural goods have also gone through a dramatic slump as well, uh, reflecting the worsening overall global economic environment. And the forecast is not encouraging. Um, you know, already the base IMF outlook for 2016 calls for world growth uh, to be less than 3%. You know, in essence, this is a technical global recession. Um, the, the combination of these uh, conditions has, has forced governments uh, to adapt far more conservative revenue estimates for 2016. Um, and the worsening oil market already this month um, has prompted some downward revisions to government uh, budget plans. Uh, now, this reversal, or this in essence is a reversal of a decade-long fiscal expansion in many of these states, and it's going to be painful both economically and politically. Um, further and deeper reforms are expected. Uh, going beyond simple spending cuts. And these are going to range from the orthodox, which is the spending and subsidy cuts being pursued in the Gulf Arab states, uh, to some of the more creative. Um, and this is, we've seen attempts by countries like uh, Angola and Kazakhstan to devalue their currency to boost the local value of their exports. Um, other countries, particularly those like Venezuela, that face severe economic difficulties even before the price fall, um, are likely headed for collapse. Um, there is a bit of conventional wisdom in the oil industry that these lower prices tend to lead to improvements in entry terms and other investment conditions. Um, but this is actually a very ambiguous result. 
Uh, in fact, over the short term, many of the most strapped countries uh, are likely to turn to the oil sector for further revenues, seeking to use creative tax and regulatory changes to address their revenue problems, leaving investment problems to another day and perhaps another administration. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Um, Jim, I, I want to go to a question that actually um, uh, uh, is uh, similar, to, very similar to one we had from uh, one of the uh, the listeners in an email before the, the call uh, re- regarding the prospects for U.S. shale oil and tight oil. Um, is this the year we will see some significant supply response in in a in that sector, which is uh, which was expected to be among the most flexible and responsive to lower oil prices? That's, that's really the billion-dollar question, isn't it? Um, I mean, shale's kind of defied the odds, but that could all change, I think, this year. The key is the financial health of the, um, the EMP independents that dominate the shale landscape. They got through 2015 thanks to improvements in efficiency and costs, uh, a large degree of hedging, momentum from CapEx plans they put in place uh, before the oil price fall in 2014, and also the fact that the banks didn't really cut off their access to credit. Now, can that be repeated in 2016? Unlikely. These companies are not well hedged for 2016. They're basically throwing every dollar of free cash flow at repaying debt, and we are starting to see some bankruptcies. I think there were 40 smaller US oil and gas firms who filed for bankruptcy last year mainly minnows and less well-known names, but these issues with credit quality are starting to creep up the food chain to some of the larger MPs. A mild winter and low gas prices aren't helping either, and when banks come to redetermine lending facilities again in April, they may seriously cut credit lines to the sector. So a lot more US independents are expected to file for bankruptcy this year if oil prices don't improve, but will that drive the big supply response everyone's looking for? Well, perhaps not as much as we think. Most companies that go under file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which means operations are kept going in some fashion as debts are settled. But that that process takes a while. In cases where assets are liquidated, buyers would presumably have more cash than the previous owners to keep activity going. But of course, they would not dump funds into loss-making operations, so production would likely be left to decline until all prices improve. But more importantly, the companies that are under the most distress don't actually produce that much. The analysts estimate that uh, output from public E&P firms outside the top 50 producers is around 10% of U.S. output, or around 900,000 barrels per day. And within that, there is a wide-ranging company quality, and those with the most debt typically hold the worst shale assets. So instead of looking at these independents, perhaps the more important thing to look at is some of these companies at the top of the market, bigger firms like ConocoPhillips, Hess, and Anadarko, as well as majors like Exxon, Mobil, and Chevron. These companies, as we said, are under severe financial pressure as well. Even when oil prices were closer to $45 a barrel, Conoco and Hess said U.S. shale output would decline this year as they cut funding due to the severely depressed price environment. So I think the critical thing to look out for in the next few weeks is what the top U.S. producers have to say in earnings calls about how they will address U.S. onshore investment in a $30 oil world and how they expect production to respond. And, and presumably, if they say they're cutting back uh, in a major way, that, that that would, in your mind, signal that we're going to see a, a steeper drop, a much steeper drop. Is that the, the logic? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Jim. So, D- David, what does this lower for longer price outlook mean for OPEC? Um, are there any prospects that it might have some kind of emergency production pact to shore up prices? Um, 
or you know, does OPEC really matter anymore? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think OPEC does still matter. Um, I think you know we're, we're at the depths of the market that we are because OPEC abandoned its traditional market uh, management strategy, and OPEC, uh, as a collective organization, remains the only actor out there that, based on a policy decision, uh, can alter the fundamental situation uh, in the oil market in the short term, or in this case, over the course of 2016. Um, I think, though, uh, despite the self-assurance by some of the largest OPEC producers that the massive scale of their resource base um, will really allow them to drive out higher-cost producers, at at the end of the day, every OPEC state suffers with prices below about $65 a barrel, which ironically is a figure close to that needed by the U.S. unconventional producers. while lifting costs may, may be the lowest in the world, you know, the overall revenues that are needed from the oil sector to support the economy, in effect, the dollars that these oil ministers need to deliver uh, to the finance ministers, has grown steadily over the past 15 years. You know, in this respect, uh, the reform measures that Saudi Arabia uh, recently announced are especially important. Um, these represent a real attempt uh, to adapt the kingdom to a lower overall price environment on a more durable basis. Obviously, Saudi Arabia has ample uh, uh, financial resources on hand to paper over uh, spending deficits for several years. But this is an attempt to put them on a more structural uh, basis to last uh, on an ongoing basis at $50 or below oil. Uh, The details of implementation will be important in the final analysis, uh, but remains a critical signal that, you know, Riyadh is working uh, on ways to make the economy more adaptable to new market realities. the other country that will be getting some relief is Iran, where sanctions relief will also include a major boost to the sizable non-oil economy. Um, but the other OPEC states will all need to undertake significant structural reforms for their economies to be able to withstand lower for longer oil markets. I do think uh, that this economic pain will likely lead to a reemergence of a consensus on the need to actively manage markets. And We already saw some progress in this regard at the cartel's December meeting in Vienna, um, and Saudi Arabia even floated a proposal there for a conditional cut. Um, There are differing views within OPEC on how the organization should address today's oil markets, especially where the scale and characteristics of U.S. unconventional uh, production has confounded uh, OPEC's traditional approach to market management. Uh, But the core disagreement really centers around who should cut and by how much. And while some members may still flirt with this fanciful notion of extracting meaningful cooperation from outside the cartel, uh, the central question remains, uh, what are the output levels, what are the appropriate output levels of Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Iraq? Now, obviously, the political environment surrounding these three could be politely described as less than cordial. Um, However, a great accomplishment of OPEC following the 1998 price collapse was to take politics out of market management. You know, certainly negotiations and and necessary compromises needed to forge a deal have become increasingly complicated following the cutting of diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran um, earlier this year. Um, But the downside for markets is that any coordinated approach to provide fundamental support is delayed. Um, You know, there is some small uh, consolation, perhaps, that we haven't seen a return to the brandishing of an oil weapon or threats to further trash oil prices to settle spats between OPEC members. Um, 
so I think what we're going to see is, is further delays and complications, probably no further progress before the regular uh, meeting in June. But we're also not going to see uh, oil companies or oil countries here threatening to bury their neighbors in oil and take prices even further uh, than the market is naturally going to take them to. But even so, Dave, you, you see that you know that that eventually this economic pain is going to cause some uh, consensus building around the idea of managing the market. That's yeah, of, and I think the weak, but, uh, but it's longer. It's longer. It's not. It's going to take time for that to to occur. Absolutely, and I think I think the key the key actor here is actually Iraq, which has added about 1.3 million barrels per day since oil prices started to collapse, um, and it's facing. Uh, almost as severe economic crisis as Venezuela when it realizes it needs to cut production. I think that opens the way for a wider cut within the cartel. Okay, thanks. Well, the the next question is really for, for both of you guys, uh, but maybe, Jim, you could give a, you know, respond first. And the, the question is, how, how, how are oil companies going to survive this extreme downturn? What survival strategies are going to be most effective? Like, and I'm thinking here, like old ones, like say vertical integration was always a, a tool that companies used uh, to pr- protect themselves, or portfolio optimization, or M&A, or newer, newer strategies, say like hedging or financial creativity or narrowing the asset focus. Um, want to give us a view on that, Jim? That's a very tough question. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's no escaping your exposure to oil and gas prices. If you're an oil and gas company in the middle of this downturn, you just have to find ways of weathering the storm better than the next guy. Um, integration will help, as I said earlier, because lower prices will do something for demand. And the closer your business is to end users of refined products, natural gas and petrochemicals, the more you'll benefit from that. But I also think... Um, oil company management teams have to hold their nerve and be prepared to take some difficult decisions. And I come back to the point I made earlier about dividends. I think the majors will have to bite the bullet here because if they don't, they're going to store up an awful lot of problems for the future. You look at what they're sacrificing just to sustain dividends. They're cutting capex and they're laying off staff. And the knock-on effect on staffing levels in oil field services, for example, has been horrendous. And this has an impact on the industry's technical capacity going forward and its ability to deliver new projects and new production as and when there is sufficient price recovery or relief on cost to allow those projects to go forward. Um, but, but I think it's also important not to just see this in terms of um, survival. I mean, there are going to be opportunities here for companies that do have some balance sheet strength and flexibility. We haven't seen much M&A yet because there's really been no consensus uh, on valuations. But if you get bankruptcies in the shale patch, for example, assets are going to become available. And for some of the majors who have frankly made to date uh, quite a mess of their investments in shale, there could be a great opportunity to pick up some good quality assets and substantially reinvigorate those businesses. And this could be an important portfolio hedge as well, particularly if you believe that the whole future of high-cost mega projects has been imperiled by shale. The majors need some more, expect, more effective exposure to that different investment model offered by shale as a counterweight to the big upfront capital cost projects they've made their bread and butter. Hey, thanks, Jim. And, and, and David, what do you think? What's your, what's your view on this strategy question? Yeah, I think, um, you know, cutting costs have already helped some companies regain traction. Um, you know, the industry as a whole returned to a positive cash flow position in the third quarter of 2015. Um, largely, the spending cuts uh, took hold. Uh, but whether these gains were held in the fourth quarter amid further price declines, 
is going to be a really critical factor to look out for um, over the earnings period. Uh, but, you know, obviously, too, this aggregate measure masks some of the key distinctions uh, among the individual companies involved. Um, now, certainly all the companies feel pain, but as Jim mentioned, uh, you know, some will have real options on how they go about seeking to demonstrate to shareholders in 2016 that they can deliver value. Um, one common trend in these approaches is the prioritization of projects of smaller cost and shorter cycle times. Um, what is sacrificed here, as Jim mentioned, is scale. And the companies are clearly expressing that they are willing to accept deterioration in their volumetric performance indicators to protect cash flow and yield. Um, for the companies that are struggling to, to survive, a fundamental challenge um, is really to restructure a business model that was firmly rooted in the period of peak oil. Um, some of the most challenged companies are those that thrived when future oil resources were considered uncertain. And these are the independent EMP companies, especially those with an emphasis on uh, frontier exploration. Um, these companies adopted less conservative fiscal approaches and greater risk-taking. Uh, you know, that worked well in a period of uh, perceived scarcity, that worked well in an exploration context. Um, but investors are now requiring companies to adopt strict fiscal discipline and to emphasize effective project execution. And many of the companies that will face bankruptcy will do so as much because they lack the capacity to become effective project managers uh, as any deficiency in their underlying assets. Okay. Well, th th thanks, David and Jim. That's that's really helpful. Now, let's let's just take this a little bit further. I mean, with the, with the cost cutting and particularly the decline in capital expenditures, how threatened are future oil supplies by these cutbacks? Um, and are mega mergers now really com sort of completely dead? Uh, what kinds of projects are still likely to proceed, uh, even in the lower for longer world? Um, maybe David, you could. Uh, Give us your view first, and then Jim can follow up. This time. Sure. Yeah, I think I think the um, uh, uh, it's it's a really an interesting question, and, and you know, value over volumes has has gone from being just simply a mantra to um, a real uh, implemented approach for a lot of these companies. And as I mentioned, uh, we're seeing a willingness to see uh, some deterioration in in volumetric indicators. Um, and, and I think that that, you know, that really threatens the mega projects. Um, however, I don't believe the, the mega project is dead. Um, certainly several have been canceled. Um, we track, uh, we've been tracking mega projects since prices started to decline in mid-2014 to see the impact um, on spending decisions. And, and we have seen seven projects of over a billion dollars in CapEx that have been canceled. Um, these are primarily oil sands projects and LNG projects. Um, and, and many of these had critical problems, uh, even if prices had remained in triple digits. Um, in contrast, some two dozen projects have been sanctioned since mid-2014, uh, reflecting a continued appetite for, for major projects or mega projects. Um, this number is down somewhat from similar periods. Probably would have expected this number to be somewhere in the in the 30s. Um, but, uh, you know, we have seen uh, a number of deferrals. We've seen 32 mega projects uh, deferred over this period of time. A further 17 projects are, sp are scheduled for FID uh, this year, and many of those, we expect, will join the ranks of the deferred. Um, but it's important to bear in mind that deferral does not mean cancellation. 
And for many of these projects, it doesn't even mean a hiatus. What it points to is the industry's changing approach to its overall portfolio development. Um, companies are emphasizing projects with overall lower spend, many of which puts uh, most mega projects out of fashion. And Chevron, for example, is not canceling or deferring all mega projects, but instead is seeking to have only one under development at a time, um, just limited its overall uh, capital exposure. Deferral on other projects simply moves these projects further into the development queue and hopefully for the companies involved to a period, uh, you know, when the economics are going to improve. Uh, lower complexity is also favored as companies strive for projects over which they have greater cost control, and shorter overall cycle times are also emphasized, which also detracts from the LNG projects in particular. Um, but again, this points to a loss of scale, and as noted before, uh, deterioration in some of these key volumetric um, indicators. So at some point, it will be safe again to speak of growth, uh, and companies will have a supply of mega projects in their pipelines to select from. And then lastly, we would say that, you know, these deferred projects are not simply shelved, but for many are being redesigned and even reimagined. Um, BP's Mad Dog 2 is a particularly striking example. Um, after deferring FID, the company uh, redesigned the project, uh, and it claims its new approach will allow production of about 90% of the original volumes at only 65% of the cost. So a key for future mega project development is how much of such cost savings represent real cost takeouts and how much is simply the result of lower prices extracted from the service sector uh, that could be reversed over time. Hey, well, thank, th thanks for that, David. Jim, do you want to comment on this? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think David's um, made a lot of the points that I, I would make um, as well. I mean, I would, I would simply give particular emphasis to this point about project management and, and that the, the problem with major, mega projects is not simply that the oil price environment has changed, it's that um, the, the majors in particular, the management of these projects just got very flabby, you know, under $100 oil. Um, they talked a lot about things like standardization, but they really didn't fix the roof when the sun was shining. And they need to improve project management. I thought David's point about Chevron trying to be trying to run fewer projects at the same time, it's part of that, you know, what do you have the operational capacity to do and what's realistic. They're not the only companies taking that approach and trying to do fewer things at the same time. The one thing I'd add, um, in addition to these kind of in-house skills and external economic environment points, is um, climate change. Um, we had the, obviously the Paris uh, talks and agreement recently. That is also going to be a factor for some of these projects because a lot of the things that companies have been talking about very enthusiastically over the last decade, the oil sands in the Arctic, are kind of in the crosshairs of, of this sort of legislation and, and the environmental movement. And if you have to deal with a serious level of carbon pricing, for example, in addition to the existing cost pressures and uncertainties, it's hard to see some of these major projects advancing. Okay, thanks. Interesting point, Jim. Um, let's, let's just, I think, I think you know, we've, we've sort of gone through a lot of the main points here. Um, I think it's time now to turn this over to the, to the floor for questions. Um, with the operator, operator, could you uh, explain how that's done? Certainly. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone telephone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. We'll pause for a moment to allow questions to queue. Okay, thanks. I do have an email question here that I... That, that, that maybe we could uh, go to as we wait for the other call, the questions. Um, and this is really specifically, this is from um, 
uh, uh, Laura Lungarini from uh, ENI, and she's asking um, for us to get for you guys to get more specific about the U.S. production forecast uh, in the near term for 2016-2017. Um, you know, what about the production resilience of the zombie companies? Um, you know, if and when U.S. production is going to plunge. Um, uh, Jim, you, you you commented on this already. D David, do you want to uh, uh, take a stab at it, or how, how do you? Who wants to take this? Yeah, I think I think the the difficulty in um, addressing this uh, uh, this question, and and precisely when are uh, volumes going to go down, and by how much? Or we've seen that they're already going down, but how quickly will that accelerate? It becomes a, a difficult question because it's really, at the end of the day, it's a question of corporate analysis. How strong are these companies um, and what are the approaches um, that they have out there? And it's also a question of uh, the bank redeterminations. We had all expected that uh, significant credit to these companies would be uh, drying up uh, in the third quarter of last year. Uh, but we saw really only marginal decreases in, in the credit availability for these companies. Um, Jim, I think, pointed out a lot of the reasons why we should not expect that result again um, in the spring redeterminations. And uh, I think we're going to start seeing a spread of uh, bankruptcies um, uh, through, through the patch at that point. Um, I think, you know, this is also an important element, too, because we had anticipated that there should be a wave of consolidation through M&A in, uh, in the shale sector, and particularly as some of those larger companies, uh, you know, the ConocoPhillips, the Anadarkos, the Hesses, as we, as we discussed, uh, really consolidate their positions around their core um, shale assets. I think what we're starting to see is uh, it's not just that there had not been a consensus upon valuations, but it's also a sense that these bankruptcies are coming, and so these companies could be more selective in when they make those acquisitions. So if you pick them up after the bankruptcy assets, they're not laden with the same type of uh, debt issues if you acquired them um, ahead of time. Now, that's important because that will adjust the overall project economics for the companies that acquire them. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't have a great number to say, yes, it's going to fall by 300,000 in the first quarter, 300,000 in the second quarter. Um, we do know the trajectory is down, um, but how it ultimately plays out when it um, levels out, uh, too, is going to be dependent upon, um, you know, how this debt bomb, as we've called it, uh, um, uh, unravels or explodes in the uh, – in the in the U.S. unconventional sector this year, and it's also just I think a matter of um, uh, the uncertainty about the economics of, of shale oil and tight, tight oil. We don't, you know, we, we don't know enough about how these you know this, this technology is too new. The businesses are the business model is new. You know, the, the, these you know it's, it's hard. It's very hard to predict. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, you know I think a core point there is. Uh, what's been happening with the inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells. You know, we had expected that to remain untouched until oil prices recovered to, say, $50 a barrel. Um, but instead what we're seeing is some companies are uh, completing those wells just to generate uh, – it will be negative cash flow, but it's enough for them to service their debt. And that's how they've been uh, able to stay afloat for so long. So 
Uh, you're right. It's the, the business models, the the geology, but also the business model of the sectors is uh, we're still exploring. That's yeah, untested. Okay. Well, are, are, are there other questions from the floor we can uh, take up? We have no phone questions at this time, but as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question today, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. Okay, I'm just looking at the time here. We have we have a little bit more time left, and I, you know, Jim and David, I do have uh, a couple of other questions that uh, I thought we could go to. We haven't really gone into natural gas very much here, and I just wondered. You know, what does this oil market outlook mean for, for natural gas, and particularly for LNG? Um, could you, you want to comment on that, Jim? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the gas market was in bad shape even before the, the price, door price downturn, thanks to shale, the shale boom in the States, obviously, but also other new supply sources emerging globally, coal bed, methane back to LNG in Australia, for example. And all of this has added to a glut in the LNG sector, which is now seen extending into the early 2020s. Um, as with all markets, there's been issues on the demand side, uh, slowing demand in Asia. We saw all of North Asia's big LNG consumers buying less LNG last year. China was a particular disappointment. Um, there are some pockets of promising new demand in Southeast Asia and, and the Middle East, but, but all relatively minor. Um, for the LNG sector, a lower for longer oil price outlook has two basic impacts. Firstly, most LNG developers are also big oil companies, so the pressure they're feeling on budgets uh, and capex from their oil prices also limits the amount of cash they have to fund new LNG development. There's been a major slowdown in final investment decisions for new LNG projects going back a couple of years now, uh, partly also because of the standoff between buyers and sellers over new pricing models. Last year, we only saw a few projects sanctioned in the US, and there was, I think, a floating LNG scheme in Cameroon as well. And this freeze or slowdown in FID is likely to persist this year. There's, again, a few Pennsylvania, I think a couple in Canada, the Shell and Petronas schemes in British Columbia, Lake Charles in the US, and Eni's floating LNG scheme in Mozambique. But I don't think we should really feel that confident that all these are going to go ahead. The other impact is really uh, on the sort of economics of current LNG supply, since most traditional long-term contracts in Asia are oil indexed. So prices in Asia have tanked, and in doing so, they've robbed um, hub-linked US LNG of its theoretical price advantage over these traditional oil-linked volumes. So it's possible, amid all the fanfare about the start of US LNG exports this year, that some of this new export capacity won't actually deliver an awful lot of LNG, since the economics into markets like Asia don't really work at the moment. The big question is how much of that LNG, that US LNG, ends up in Europe, which has ample spare regas capacity and well-developed trading hubs. And that, of course, depending on how much turns up in Europe, can have a big knock-on effect on existing pipeline supplies like Russia. Okay, well, maybe uh, we should just check and see if we have any other questions from the from the floor at this time. Is there anything, operators, or anything? Any questions you have? We do have no questions at this time. Okay. Well, David, let's let's wrap it up with one last question to you then. Um, and you know, what, basically, you know, what is what does all of this mean for Saudi Arabia, and to what extent uh, is the proposed privatization program for Saudi Aramco uh, can be seen, can can it, cannot be seen as a response to the current situation? Oh yeah, um, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, certainly faces um, some real challenges. Um, and it's, it's had some uh, economic challenges uh, for, for decades and it's been able to paper over with high um, oil prices. Um, 
it's going to be much more difficult for it to do that. And, and last year, the kingdom got through by drawing down extensively on its foreign reserves. Um, you know, it still has over half a trillion dollars in the bank, so you know we don't need to worry too much about Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia's drawdown last year represented a sum greater than what Nigeria had at the beginning of 2015. Um, so it was a massive um, drawdown of capital here. Uh, as noted earlier, um, the reforms underway are an attempt to put the uh, economy on a footing better able to withstand sustain lower oil prices. Um, but, of course, the reforms come at some political cost, especially in a period when succession and regional events are already challenging the political dynamics um, in the kingdom. I think, to a certain extent, the prospect of the Saudi Aramco IPO, um, you know, to be listed on the Saudi exchange and likely only open to Saudi investors, is a, a small reward for Saudis who want to see um, – uh, you know, some of, it's a small reward for the Saudis who are going to see some of their subsidies and other benefits uh, diminish in, co- in coming months. Um, but this is about reform and restructuring of the overall economy. It's not a short-term measure to cover a spending gap. Uh, the kingdom has ample reserves and recourse to additional lending for those purposes. Um, while we're still awaiting details of the potential IPO, which may be limited to downstream subsidiaries first, et cetera, and expected new industrial policy um, is also uh, due to be unveiled sometime later this year, and this will likely give the best indication of how King Salman and his Council of Advisors see the future of uh, their country developing into a more uh, mature economy, despite a lower for longer oil price outlook. Okay. Well, so there. I mean, there there is a there is a, uh, a connection here between the, the privatization, but it's or or. IPO, but it's really more um, about these longer-term uh, uh, kind of industrial policy, economic transformation. Yeah, I think it's I think it's 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 related to how you want to address this this further, you know, what we would call secondary or tertiary economic reforms um, in Saudi Arabia um, that they've probably thought about for a long time, but uh, had been considered to be politically taboo. Um, you know, the oil price pain uh, removes a lot of these, um, a, a lot of these restraints, um, clears the way for some more um, creative action to address these things, um, and we'll see uh, what further progress, if any, um, can be made, not just in Saudi Arabia, but throughout uh, the GCC states. Yeah, and I guess that's a it is a, a really a, a lower for longer strategy on the, on the part of the of Saudi Arabia. Right. Yeah. So, any last questions from the floor before we wrap it up? And we have no question. Oh, I'm sorry. We actually did have a question just pop in from Colin Smith. Your line is open. Hi, gentlemen. Hi, Jim. Um, I'm. I was wondering, <laughs> just in the context, obviously, there's a lot about Iran potential return to the market, and you touched on some of the pressures that other OPEC members are fearing, but I wondered if you just had a view about what production might do under some of the more challenged members of OPEC, and in particular, I'm thinking about Iraq, which has obviously been a key driver of production growth. Um, you may or may not have seen the um, Ganel statement today, which I think makes it pretty clear that there is effectively not going to be uh, much, if any, capex, and underlying depletion there is probably about, you know, 15% or so in the KRI regions. And I hear that the 
large companies involved in southern Iraq are not receiving their full allocation um, at the moment either. And obviously there are well-documented uh, reports of the Iraqi government seeking to cut development budgets. So I'm just curious if you have a view or insight as to what you think actually may happen to Iraq's production capacity over the course of this year and beyond. Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, Iraq presents a, a particularly uh, striking example, and this is why I think it's, it's actually at the center of OPEC's debate here. Um, it's, it's added about 1.3 million barrels per day uh, in, in production since uh, July of 2014, a little bit more than that now. Um, and it was expected in, in 2016 to only show modest growth, um, if any. Um, and and the, re the reason that's important is Iraq made it through 2015 to the extent that it did only because it had that substantial um, volume increase. Um, now, the country is, is facing some severe uh, economic pressures, um, and without that uh, production increase or that magnitude of a production increase, um, or even as, as as you rightly mentioned, uh, the prospects of a slight uh, production decrease is going to face some, some truly challenging uh, economic conditions this year. I think what's really instructive is uh, when we look at the position Saudi Arabia was in in 1998. In 98, the, the kingdom actually uh, was technically insolvent. Um, and it was at that moment that Saudi Arabia decided that it's going to give up uh, market share for uh, higher prices. When Iraq reaches a similar conclusion and it's facing uh, similar pressures, that I think really opens up the door for a wider deal within um, OPEC on how do you divvy up a substantial cut. What Baghdad is going to realize is this natural attrition uh, that could amount to a couple hundred thousand barrels per day um, you know, 100, 200,000 uh, barrels per day is not going to is not going to rebalance markets. OPEC probably needs to take uh, one and a half million barrels off the market to simply balance, and probably three uh, to really support uh, markets durably. Um, and Iraq cannot do that alone. It's going to have to go through that same lesson that Saudi Arabia learned uh, in '98. And when those three can reach a consensus there, then you'll see a durable. Uh, or you'll see a, a political consensus emerge for uh, a reactive or a return to active market management. Okay, thanks, Th thanks, David. I think you know, folks. I'm uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is about all we have time for today. Um, uh, and I thank you for joining us. And um, you know, we, we're, we're going to be doing this again probably uh, mid-February, and we'll send you information about our next virtual roundtable. But th thanks for joining us, and, and Jim and David, thanks for your uh, comments. Um, really appreciate them. So uh, with that, I'll close off the call. Thanks a lot. Thank you.